0: if you awaken from this illusion, persistence of vision. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Persistence of Vision podcast. We are delighted to welcome you back to the podcast where we read books with people we love. I love it.
1: I love it. So uh, Persistence of Vision Publishing is an Austin-based company dedicated to bringing you a steady stream of thought-provoking, conversation-stimulating material, LB. Yes. By, by the way, that's uh, LB over there. Yes. Uh, I'm Lance Fever Myers. Uh, if you check out the website, which is pov-publishing.com, you can read poetry by one East Myers and W. Joe Hoppy. You can read sequential art and comics by Walt Holcomb and Penny Van Horn and Shannon Wheeler and yours truly. And you can read about my new novel, which has just been released. It's called Why So Much? You can get yourself a copy at Amazon and in select bookstores around Austin. And we're having a big party, LB. Yes. To celebrate the launching of this company and the book. That's happening at Malvern Books. June Uh, 8th. June 8th. That's right. June 8th.
0: 2019.
1: Correct. For those of you listening backwards into the the past from the future. so um, 7 p.m. We'll see you there. And we saw you there, if you're one of the future people (laughs) who's listening. future people. (laughs) We saw you there, and we loved seeing you there. Um, So we're doing another podcast about another book. Yes. And we have another guest. Who is it?
0: We are absolutely thrilled to have the maestro himself, a man who needs no introduction, Graham Reynolds. Yay. Graham is a composer, a band leader, a superstar, a great low post basketball player. Uh, what else are you Graham Uh, a reader I guess a reader of books that's a good answer a reader of sequential art as Lance calls comic books and a reader of 19 ways of looking at Wang Wei Uh, would you tell us about the book that you've chosen 19 ways of looking at Wang Wei
2: sure it's Elliot Weinberger and I've read uh, he's a poetry editor and essayist and an author And I've read some of his other books. This is his book that uh, has 19 different translations of the same Tang Dynasty poem by Wang Wei.
0: Yes. Now, Wang Wei is a Buddhist poet and painter who lived in the Tang Dynasty, which, if you're keeping track, was a very long time ago. That's about 1,200 years ago. Uh, the Tang Dynasty was uh, one of the one of the earliest of the real dynasties. We have sort of uh, unofficial designations for dynasties that go back more than two thousand years or so, but they really are almost the stuff of legend. the the The, the real dynasties begin not too terribly long before the Tang. What made you so interested in Chinese poetry? Uh, there are several ways to to get to this
2: answer the the first was going uh, walking through the Met going through a Chinese painting exhibit and there was a poem uh, painting rather from about 200 years ago and it was sort of by Wang Wei and sort of not Mm -hmm. he uh, was in his time known primarily as a painter later on known primarily as a poet and part of the reason is that his poetry survives and zero of his paintings survive. Ah. But they were copied in the in the traditional uh, uh, master and tutor relationship. Each uh, subsequent student would paint Wang Wei's painting over again. Mm. So the version I saw 200 years ago had been painted over and over and over again by various students uh for uh, nearly a thousand years or so uh, 800 900 years something like that and so this uh, painting by way of translation and it yes. was one of these scrolls which uh according to according to elliot weinberger is uh, a genre that that uh Wang Wei helped introduce and his mountain and streams poetry at this point he was uh it wasn't wasn't uncommon for a painter to also be a poet. And so anyway, I see this painting and I'm interested in the painting and I'm interested in this concept that a copy of a painting through countless other iterations uh, was on display at the Met. And then, you know, you Google him and what you come up with is poetry instead. And I had read a bunch of Li Po and some of the other Chinese poets and... But I'd never read long way, so I started diving into that and found my way to this book.
0: Very interesting and and uh, very strange to me. <laughs> this is absolutely strange.
1: Yeah, you're talking, and and all these questions are bubbling up. Okay, so first of all, so we're talking about what time period? You're like 1,200 years ago. Yes. So yeah. at this point, we're like eight, eight or nine hundred.
0: It's right, very comparable to the time of the Trojan war the trojan civilization that we discussed in an earlier podcast but uh unlike the ancient troy this was never in any doubt as to the historicity of
1: it it wouldn't be the same time
0: period would it we're talking uh bc right Twelve hundred. no uh, no oh that's that's no, yeah, no. I think I think the the uh talking, happened about twelve hundred. His years
2: are six ninety nine to seven fifty nine. Oh,
0: my mistake. My mistake. Oh, so twelve hundred yeah. years ago, of course. Right. 12, 699 you. to Seven fifty nine. Gotcha. I
1: gratefully accept your correction. And the Tang
2: Dynasty is considered a golden age of chinese culture the the painting poetry philosophy all flourished greatly during that's time.
1: so interesting to me you know I, so i went to school for and I, I did study a little um you know art history in, uh, in my time uh but it's all western it's sure. all western history it's focused so heavily on western civilization and you know for so for western civilization that's a dark period and you know, that's a very dark like yes. very stagnant period of art, but it's interesting to to find that uh, yeah, the Chinese culture is going yeah. so mm-hmm. so well. <laughs> thing, same thing happens
2: in music. You study the history of Western music; it's going to be classical composers. It's not going to include right. yeah. rock and roll or R and B or African music, or just you'd have to go outside to world music history or something that specifically points at that. And I think that's that was certainly true when I was going to school, and to a degree, I think it's still true today.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and if you're going to learn anything like you know, if I I did take like an African art history class and that sort of thing, but those were all very specialized. So if you right. take like just your typical like okay, your you know, vanilla intro to art history, it's going to be all about western civilization.
2: Right. And then I had a couple other angles into this book of Chinese poetry. I one of my favorite classes in college was Chinese short story, and mm-hmm. ever since then I've read Chinese uh, literature and poetry and all this. And then, even further back, uh, when I was a kid going through uh, boxes of books in our basement growing up, my dad had uh, gotten his master's in history and he had focused on Chinese history. So, there were these boxes and boxes of, of Chinese history books that were far too complex for me to understand. <laughs> but yeah. I thought China was cool as a result.
0: Right. Very cool. And this, speaking of cool, this book has a rather cool structure it's uh it's not a typical book it's quite short, but you don't get the impression that it was written in a short time I, at least I didn't I, I, no. it seems like it's uh every single word was carefully researched and constructed because what the book st- structure is will tell us about it okay so it's
2: he starts out, well, it's it's a combination of translations of this one poem, 19 different translations, combined with little essays, reviews, uh, analyses of the various translations. So he starts out with the introductory material, and then a character by character. like First a pictogram kind of analysis. Uh, uh, when it's written in the original Chinese, which characters have some sort of pictorial root to them that you can still see in the way the character is written. Then he goes to a transliteration, and then he goes to a word-by-word translation, not trying to turn it into a fully translated poem, but a more of a literal list of definitions of these words. Right. Um, and then he switches over to translations by other usually by, by translators or other poets or both. Um, and so, and then analyzes each one and builds up to the finale of his favorite translation.
0: Yes, and most of the re- critiques of the translations are not uh, glowingly favorable. He,
2: he th- It's interesting because these are, a lot of these poets and translators are people, he edits for New Directions, and quite a few of them are people he either respects or, even releases the work of, uh, but uh, the point of this book is to uh, dig deeper into the challenges of translation. So uh, uh, quite a few of them fare poorly. <laughs> yes, <laughs>
0: they fare poorly. And the uh, but I think I don't know if you if you had the same experience, but for me, one of the real joys of the book was to confront the nature of language. And its relation to consciousness yeah in the sense that our you know as Wittgenstein said the limits of my language are the limits of my world uh, we see a description early in the book of the limitations of the Chinese language the which is another way of saying the boundaries or the shape of the Chinese mm-hmm. language which is very different from uh, a language like ours that has the Roman alphabet uh it is a a a language that has a s- quasi-pictographic uh character set it has uh, the most i believe it says the most limited number of phonemes or vowels for sounds a major of, language exactly yes of any major language and when we think about what it would be like to use to 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 speak within those limitations i think we're also talking about what it's like to think within those limitations which makes us i think turn around and look at our own language and wonder what what are the limitations of what we're able to express or even think in english uh, and
2: to me this applies not just to spoken language or written language but as a composer this applies to m- music as well, and the way that people understand music. Uh, when, in, in context of music, you everyone grows up learning musical vocabulary, whether you study it in a in deep way or you're just a casual listener. There's so much music in our lives that we have all this music vocabulary at, by the time we're five even, and you, you know, by, and certainly by the time you're an adult, you've heard countless hours of music and you can recognize patterns and styles and you can tell the difference between jimi Hendrix's guitar and uh, eric clapton's guitar you can tell classical from pop you can tell all sorts of things you have all this information stored up about it and but you still your musical world is limited to this language, you can continue to expand it, but listening to music from another culture can be very difficult. And even within one's own culture, it can be very hard where you hear a lot of criticism from say a more traditional classical listener or analyst would say, oh, the harmonics, the the pop music is boring, it's Mm -hmm. simple. And that's because they're listening for a specific set of vocabulary and how it develops. And yet, if you look at Bach, he might be rhythmically horribly boring. And most of his pieces are. If you just took the r- rhythms, it might be eighth, 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 eighth. And occasionally a couple of sixteenth notes and or s- giant streams of the most boring rhythmic structure ever with... Th- uh, not that he wasn't capable of syncopation and other more complex rhythmic forms, but it was not the focus. Right. And so to someone who's listening to harmonic development, which Bach was very good at, they're going to be bored when the the same chords repeat over and over again, or even in like funk or something like that, where the chord might not change at all in the course of a whole song. Uh but if you're used to listening to that music or if you're a creator of that music or if you spent a lot of time with it, you listen for other things in the music and you're interested in timbre and rhythms and the, the way, just the way things sound in a way that a symphony always has the same instruments and every piece of pop music has a different synthesizer sound, a different guitar sound. Uh, all these other things that develop that make it, that piece unique that have nothing to do with harmony, yes. and so the, again, the limit, the, the translation, and the way we understand and how our minds are limited by our vocabulary uh, applies across uh, all sorts of boundaries, not just poetry. Beyond verbal language, yeah.
1: yes. I find that to be a really interesting topic. With the the idea of, and and I relate it, of course, to more visual art, but the idea that can you do you appreciate or how does it? change the way you appreciate visual art by educating yourself about it so for example there's you know if if you know what Rothko was doing or what came before Rothko can you then gain an appreciation of what he was trying with just these color field things and and suddenly you understand the in the work in context and that sort of thing but also you know I, I think it's fair to to judge things on just the aesthetic value but you bring up an interesting point that just exposure whether or not you, like, study and understand who Rothko was, if you just expose yourself to his work and the work near his, it changes things. There's a difference maybe between educating yourself and, like, actually studying the minutia of, like, how somebody, you know, like their life and everything. The life of Jackson Pollock from where he was born to where he died and that sort of thing. But not necessarily that, but the context or, or, or the, uh, his contemporaries and all the things that happened visually in that field. I think that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms as far as just exposure.
2: Yeah, there are very different schools of thought about that. Like Glenn Gould would think that the context shouldn't matter. It's either good music or it's not good music, mm-hmm. regardless of when it was created. It's kind of impossible. Though, right? But it's very, very difficult to actually take things out of their context. And you know, it's uh, judging any for- form of art is a challenging thing but it's especially difficult if you're trying to extract uh, it from its context
0: well just as we uh with the western exposure to music might find chinese music difficult to grasp or that someone who is a classically trained musician might struggle with pop music we are definitely I i won't say it's difficult to appreciate necessarily but it's it's definitely interesting to come across this Chinese poetry. We haven't actually even talked much about the poem itself, which, uh, but, but I think that one thing we, we, we see in the book is this discussion of how Westerners really began to appreciate Chinese poetry only in the 20th century as the result of a single poet and sort of empresario of poetry, Ezra Pound. Mm hmm. And, uh, and this poem, the Wang Wei poem, uh, well, we don't even really have a set title for it, right? Every single, or virtually every translation has a different, different titles,
2: title. or no title, or and each time, in the title, sets you up with it's the
1: first context you
2: have for the
0: piece. Well, yes. should
1: we let the listeners know what, what yeah, the poem I, is? Yeah, I thought
0: maybe I would read the first translation that Great. he offers, and and Grant, maybe you would want to read the last one, the, the one that he approves Perfect. of the most. Yep. So this one is really not. Uh, gonna meet with our author's approval here (laughs) this poem and I think if you hear why you'll I mean you hear it you'll hear why he uh, didn't find it to be particularly authentic or or poetically uh, effective in this translation the title of the poem is the form of the deer so lone seem the hills there is no one in sight there but whence is the echo of voices I hear the rays of the sunset Pierce slanting the forest and in their reflection the green mosses appear this is a translation by a guy named W. J. B. Fletcher in 1919 one of the great little drawbacks you might say of this poem that the uh, the author of the book uh, points out is this line whence is the echo of this voices I hear well there is no I in the Wang Wei original Chinese poem, there's no reference to the narrator at all. And what we see again and again in, in these translations is that the, in order to translate into English or Spanish, because some of these are into Spanish or French, the, the Western translator finds it impossible to avoid injecting this ego perspective where there is none in the original yeah they can't
2: imagine it the bounds of their language and the bounds of the way they think um forces them into this oh it's got to come from a perspective and then they put it in this autobiographical perspective yes well i'll read this other translation which is uh the translation is by gary snyder who's a a poet uh, himself as well as a translator and After you've read through Elliot Weinberger's analyses of all the others, you you get a sense of what he's looking for. Yes. He wants it to stand on its own as a poem, but he wants it also to be faithful to, to the language, and those are difficult dual objectives to achieve. Empty mountains, no one to be seen, yet hear human sounds and echoes. Returning sunlight enters the dark woods, again shining on the green moss above
0: yes quite a bit more uh powerful i would say and but it's interesting And that again when we when we uh talk about the the translation across media as you said what was the line and here yet here yet here Uh, that's a homonym right (laughs) it's actually here like the sound here, but it, it, as I heard you say it out loud, I realize it could very easily sound like H-E-R-E. Uh So that's just another example of the, uh, the fact that every linguistic context is somewhat limited. And this, yeah, it's one thing to talk about that. It's another thing to see Weinberger really dive into these differences, these clashes that we see. And it, it's really marvelous, so some
2: of it's as simple as this this light that's coming through and then shining. Uh, they
0: can't agree whether it's shining above or shining below or <laughs> yes. shining like what what direction is it th- shining? Is it reflecting? Is yeah. it piercing? Uh, the original poem is shown in the book and and I say shown because of course, I can't read Chinese, but also because that some of these characters really are very pictographic. the 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 character for shine, has little rays coming off of the bottom of it, uh, like a light. And uh, <laughs> yeah, how do you how do you translate that into alphanumeric characters from the from our alphabet? It's it's you can see the difficulties.
1: Well, I think what you said about the uh, um, the the Western voice, not the Western translators, not really being able to comprehend a certain you know like. Uh, point of view um and it's unsettling to think that we have limitations right or that there's not some sort of um ultimate or objective way to look or think of things it's strange to think that that okay all my life I'm I'm living within a certain viewpoint and I, I can't help but be in that and you know it's like I don't know maybe it's it's sort of like the uh the fish not understanding water you know I mean it's it's terrifying to think if someone brings up the fact that we're in water, I'm in water that shapes me, but I have no way to analyze that particular thing because I'm in it. Right.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, language is so limited and we think we understand something or we think we're communicating something and and certain basic things are fairly reliable. You know, if I said hand, hand me two apples, you'll hand me probably what we both will consider to be two things. But if we, as soon as you get very deep into language, we start, it unravels very quickly. And there are a lot of assumptions when you're talking or describing or, or translating in this case. And we, you go up against these limitations of language and that's part of what makes something like music or visual art or these other mediums. so. Powerful because they're finding other ways to express things Mm -hmm. and reveal the limitations of words There are other things that are much more much easier to communicate Straight up with words, so it's it's an amazing tool uh, but just to be aware of its limitations as we're making all these assumptions every day every day and you know the way uh, People read the same newspaper article and come away with entirely different impressions of what you speak the same language yeah exactly the exact same words exact same source totally different understanding I mean everyone uh, understands the limitations of various categories if uh, you know you're talking about country music uh, you know uh, more traditionalist might think the stuff on the pop country radio is not country music it's not real country music Uh, whereas I obviously that radio station and those artists think it that is and everyone has their own definition of what you know oh no now it's rock and roll oh no now it's country or whatever they think it is they think it's just uh and the as challenge these other these categories that people like to argue about and enjoy arguing about are good demonstrations of how something that you know you ever everyone has a sense of the ballpark of what country music sounds like <laughs> yeah. but no one can say definitively this is what country music is
1: i think one of the things that makes those type of arguments get so heated is that art is such a personal thing it can really touch you in a deep way in a very personal way and when uh, you feel like someone else doesn't appreciate that or didn't get, get touched in the same way you did and you know it's like it feels maybe a little threatening to think what what but that's very important to me. That really spoke to me, and I feel very understood by that. And if you don't, then, you know, where are we? <laughs> that's know?
2: why it's so easy to get into arguments
0: about anything. <laughs> yes, that's right. Thank goodness. You know, uh, oh, go ahead. go ahead.
1: I was going to say uh, one, one thing that came to mind when we were talking about translation um, and limitation was, have you, ever, have you read any Murakami? Sure. Yeah. Um, I just recently picked up a book of his. I haven't started reading it yet, but it was the intro was talking about his first novel and how he first started r- writing, um, and he at f- he wrote. I think it was a very short novel. If I'm not mistaken, I'm going to get this totally wrong, by the way. But uh, it goes something like this: He he started writing and he felt like he it, it failed and he wasn't any good at it. And so what he did to limit himself was to write in English. And he was very limited in that. Mm-hmm. He didn't know, he couldn't, he couldn't wax as poetic, he right. couldn't, you know, he couldn't let himself just, just go. He, he, his, his vocabulary was limited. So it forced him to sort of pare down to a very simplistic way of stating things um, and to avoid the flowery language. And that's, that, that's where his style arose. And I remember reading, like, several of his books before understanding that and thinking that he it's there's like an awkward phrasing that he has but there's something kind of appealing about that how simple it is working within those limitations
2: shrinking parameters is a classic way to help someone be creative right and you, you get rid of all those that overwhelming amount of choices that you have <laughs> and then all of a sudden you might start thinking differently and so once someone is so deep in that, that minutiae that's so interesting to an expert tr- has a hard time translating to any sort of wider audience. I had, a, I had a teacher who played in a traditional jazz band in high school and we would go see them often in you know, music of the teens, twenties, thirties and for them, this tiny little chord change, this turnaround, might make this song really exciting and different from the others and to everybody else. Well, that kind of sounds like that other song yeah. and the song before that one, too. <laughs> right. uh, these little things mean someone who knows that, that vocabulary so well, and that, but in a broader context. doesn't mean a lot.
0: Right. Yeah, and just going back to this whole... Uh, question of linguistic limitations and so forth. Remind, one thing I was reminded of in the book is this kind of computational view of the world and how someone like Alan Turing spent a lot of time trying to figure out whether a computer would be able to to think, in and in, in, I put that in quotes, but uh, whether a universal computer was possible, that could, constant, that, could uh, that binary could, inco- in, could encode any Uh, idea for example and uh and it's it's interesting to me and i think he he proved that it could but it's interesting to me because we think well of course we can we can encode any concept the question is can a computer do it with Mm -hmm. a much simpler language of binary and and yet can a person who only speaks the language or languages he knows encode concepts that exist or have only been presented in a, in a completely different language, you know, as different as Chinese and English. Uh, uh yeah, I guess I'm reiterating a point, but I thought it was an interesting way to look at it.
1: I was going to say, uh, the idea of encoding really vast amounts or very sophisticated amounts of data. Uh, or you know, like in in language, whatnot. It's like it brings to mind like encoding of DNA, right? It's like you only have four. Is it right? Four chromosome. Four. It's made of four different
0: <laughs> pieces uh, Four right? letters. Yeah. That's
1: right. Yeah. So, but uh, binary is only two, right? Right. But I'm about to show my total ignorance about uh, language. <laughs> but uh, the idea that uh, I was I was trying to think in terms of uh, when anytime you you write something down in a well quote unquote well formed sentence. There's a subject and a predicate. Right now, I don't know. Maybe you guys can help me understand this. I don't. I don't know the answer to this, and it's a very stupid question to maybe ask when I don't know the answer. But uh, are there languages that don't do that? Because it feels to me like that's that's the basic building block of of all communication. Something does something. Right. So there's there's a
0: there's a subject, and a verb. Is that I, I universal? Going by this book, I would say not necessarily. I mean, it seems like. Uh, like a, as I was saying earlier, there's this character that means shine, but it's a, effectively is a picture of of shining, of, of light shining, and so yeah, you could, I guess in a way it could function as a predicate to a or or, or as a verb, mm-hmm. but in a, in a real sense it's a noun, hmm. and so yeah, I don't know. What do you think?
2: I, I, I my linguistic history is limited but I, I do think there I, I suspect there are different ways of constructing basic communication mm-hmm. and uh, the, just the things we know say from this book about China, the Chinese language and things that we assume in our cantum uh, like uh, tenses in verbs mm-hmm. past present future mm-hmm. they don't exist. So, like, how do you communicate when you can't use a verb tense? It yeah. seems hmm. so limiting. Right. But obviously, it's been working perfectly well. Pretty well. For <laughs> <our> <laughs> I remember
0: thinking about, like, phrases like Mao Zedong would use. Like, he would say, uh, let a, thousand, a hundred flowers bloom. And it was apparently a very menacing statement about possibly being about nuclear war. And I remember when I first heard that phrase, I thought, wow, he was really very much a poet. But then later on thinking, well, maybe that's just how you say it, you know, in in a language that has a much more uh, specific vocabulary and and a much more truncated way of expressing things. I
2: think that's one thing that we encounter when we're reading, say, poetry from another culture is it sounds poetic because it's constructed differently mm, from right. the way we would sure. construct, and that's what we perceive as the art. Yes, when that's actually just the language. Yes, and then that's we're missing point. the actual art because we don't have the context, we don't have the vocabulary, we don't have the uh, any sort of background in understanding. What what this poem means in a deeper way? It just sounds like pretty language, and that's part of what this book is so good at. Is it takes something that sounds so simple at first, and by the end of reading all these translations and all these analyses of the translations, you get a much deeper sense of what the poem means, and it's not just as simple as a a, a nice mountain and it's really quiet and pretty out there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right? You know, I wonder. and, and maybe this, this goes to the heart of why, you know, if you want to learn a language, do it when you're young, right? The idea that, uh, and I talked to my students about this when we talk about the art of character design in animation. It was like you create, um, for pictographic language, I mean, our alphabet at one time looked a lot more like the things that it was trying to represent, right? But it, over time, it becomes more and more abstracted. And yet, we still, at, when we're learning to read, we start to get sort of hardwired into not seeing it anymore. Meaning that when you and I look at the shape of the letters that spell cat, we are no longer able to actually see those for what they are. What we immediately feel and think is the imagery that it brings up, what it symbolizes. Yes. And it's an immediate thing. But when you're doing something like a translation, you have to go through a, a slightly more roundabout way to get there. And I think there's something that's very um powerful about that hardwired thing that you get as a child. Like learning to, to, to feel what it symbolizes rather than having to go through the steps of seeing it, decoding it, and then understanding it.
2: This is very similar to making music too. I mean, if you're practicing you're thinking, you know, C and then D and then E and then F and you're practicing this scale and you're very deliberate about it. But by the time you're performing, you're not thinking so literally and mm. so point by point. Mm. And what are all these notes that I'm putting together? And what is this rhythm? You've you're, you've moved past that towards actually communicating, speaking the language of music instead of thinking the language of music in a um, in, in a broken down
1: step by step
0: sense. Right, makes sense. I think that we've we've seen, added another layer here because we have this wonderful book talking about the differences in interpretation and translation, but now talking to you, Graham, we have this extra layer of what it's like to read this book and think about these ideas as a musician and to have that framework to apply to it. So that's that's really wonderful. Uh, I think we're probably ready to do our lightning round at this point. Like, right. But maybe, maybe we just see if you have an, any things you'd like to finish off or anything you haven't said about the book that you'd like to to say you know that
2: uh authorship is such a in the confusing thing mm-hmm. where because it's tied in our culture to finances mm-hmm. <laughs> it Honestly. it's a very important to determine who the author is or how much of a percentage in in a very concrete way uh you you are the author but when you have a con- something like this where a painter who painted paintings in, in the 700s then gets copied over for hundreds and hundreds of years. At that point, who's the author of that painting? Or when these 19 different translations of this thousand-year-old poem are all very different and all artistic statements unto, unto themselves. And when we understand that language is this limited thing, and essentially it's, you know, like, it's sampling, you know, yeah, or you're taking the, these the, these words that someone else created and figured out to make this little category that symbolizes this this thing in the world and then constructing it your own way. And, uh, you know, the authorship starts to look like a very slippery thing.
1: Yes, that is interesting. You know, the verb just got the rights to the sweet symphony back oh there you go (laughs) go. (laughs) (laughs) that says it all Uh, (laughs) all right lightning round here we go Uh, graham when was the first time you remember falling in love with a book
0: Ooh, uh, you have one no (laughs) i
2: I'm, i'm sure i could think about this for longer but the first image that comes to my mind is going to the bethany public library where i grew up and there was a little Corner of kids' books, and then in that corner was a series of biographies, and I would pick out a new biography, whether it was Clara Barton or Sam Houston or all, all sorts of figures, and sort of read my way through all those histories, which all of which would probably, um, I, the the scholarship might be seen as uh, suspicious at this point. <laughs> you know, <laughs> these might be rewritten if I, we looked at them now. Um, Because they read more like adventure stories Mm. than than what what we the way we might write history today. (laughs) But I I love that little corner of the library and that set of biographies.
1: Nice. Uh, Has a book ever changed your mind about anything?
2: Well, yeah, all the time. I try to I I try to have strong opinions that I deeply believe in that I'm willing to let go of in a second, Mm. and um. I know that I disagree with myself from 10 years ago and I disagree with that self from 10, 10 years before that about aesthetic things, philosophical things, uh, values and morals and ethical things. And so if I don't agree with myself and I can think of myself as being a bad person in the past, <laughs> I certainly know that 10 years from now I'm going to think back on me now and ooh, I wasn't a very good artist then or I made these mistakes ethically or whatever it might be and and so i as opinionated and stubborn as i am which is i'm a lot of both i also try to be open to change
0: it's a very uh it's a noble way to to live well, on I, it's I it's, I a, it's aspirational yeah, maybe. 10 <laughs> years from now you're gonna think what a stupid way <laughs> <happen."> exactly <laughs> i know exactly what a terrible answer. i know i i know <laughs> i'm wrong <laughs> yeah you know, the,
2: the the phrase i like is the uh, this glass is already broken uh-huh. and you just think of uh, that, that's generally applying to physical things like don't get too attached to anything mm. it's already broken but I also think a bit with, about my opinions my opinions already wrong <laughs>
1: <laughs> well okay so uh, uh, yeah that was uh, has a book ever changed your life I mean your mind but has a book ever changed your life
2: that's a good question and uh, I think I I remember Paintings that changed my life, hmm. um, and which makes me think if I thought longer and harder about it, I'd find the book that changed my life. But seeing the muralist in Beas Artes in uh, Mexico City when I was around nine changed the direction of my life uh, forever. I ended up studying Latin American history. I ended up uh, living here. I grew up in Connecticut, and here I am, one four hours from Mexico and Texas, and uh, and. This idea of uh, this great public art movement when most of Western art was leaning towards the the narrow sort of um, art of the individual and the the self-expression, and this was something that's much broader than that. So those paintings changed my life, and I'm sure there are books that have a similar impact, but that's the first piece of uh, art, creative work that I think of as changing my life.
1: Fascinating. That's great. Okay, so uh, has a book ever made you cry?
0: Has anything ever made you cry? <laughs> I,
2: I, uh, uh, I'm not sure that that a, a book has. I, um, as uh, progressive as I try to be, I definitely have a machismo streak that doesn't allow me to do certain things, and crying is one of them.
0: Wow. Interesting. Interesting. Okay,
1: uh, name a book you've read more than once.
2: 19 Ways of Looking at Wang Wei. There
1: you go. <laughs> Very good. There you go. Very good. And why did you why, why did you come back to it?
2: Uh, it, it? Because it's so simple and so so layered at the same time, and the, uh, the, this idea of authorship translation and ways multiple ways of looking at the same thing is infinitely fascinating to me.
1: Okay, and final question. This is the big one. Uh, Do you have any poetry Committed to memory
2: No this is why I'm an improviser (laughs) I do not like I'm not well I'm I'm not good at memorizing things and, uh, And I don't enjoy Memorizing things And so I try to write music that other people play the written stuff, and I play the stuff I feel like playing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess the same thing applies to poetry.
1: You're not alone. I, I think we've had one guest answer that one in the
0: affirmative. You know what I have committed to memory? An Ezra Pound Chinese-style poem. Oh, look at that. It's only two lines. Would you like to hear it? Absolutely. Not uh, very much. It's called In a Station at the Metro, and it goes, The apparition of these faces in the crowd petals on a wet black bough. Mm, beautiful so let that be a lesson (laughs) too i have i have already he
2: may have turned into a fascist but ezra pound brought chinese poetry to the western world
0: Uh, he's an interesting guy isn't he 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 was he was he was also interesting in that he was uh a, a serious poet but probably better known or or more important as a a kind of uh Cheerleader, inspirer, yeah. uh, organizer, introducer of poets to each other and, and other artists. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. but He's uh, best known for, as a
1: lyric in a Bob Dylan song. <laughs> of course. Of course.
0: <laughs> well, we want to thank the maestro Graham Reynolds, composer, poetry fan, band leader, superstar, low post basketball player. Uh, Where can uh, uh, listeners hear some of your work? Oh,
2: I'm easy to track down uh, whatever service you use, whether it's Spotify or or uh, YouTube or whatever you like to listen to music on. I've got a lot of music out there in the world, and then I perform all the time a lot in Austin, but I travel around too, but um, I'm very Googleable.
1: Graham Reynolds is an Austin treasure. I highly recommend checking him out if you haven't heard him already. Google him. Yes. Thank you, Graham. This has been fantastic.
2: Hey, thank you so much for having me.
0: And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us for another fun-filled episode of Persistence of Vision podcast. You can check out the Persistence of Vision publishing website at pov-publishing.com, where you'll find comics, poetry, uh, original prose, and a link to read the brand new novel by Lance Fever Myers, Why So Much. So check it all out and join us on the the, uh, 8th Uh, at Malvern Books, and we love you, and God damn you all. (laughs) Thanks, folks. Bye.